invite you to open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 10 in the Old Testament. While you're doing that, just a reminder, Hungary, the country of Hungary, is a landlocked country. And one of the borders, as you may know, if you know your geography over there, is Ukraine. And so, obviously, right this minute, several hundred thousand refugees have flowed into Hungary. There's a, it's a small part of their eastern border that borders Ukraine, but several hundred uh, refugees have come into Hungary it's just in the last several weeks with the war going on. And hence, the special offering we've been urging you to participate in through our mission arm, Reach Global, to help out with the Ukrainian refugees in Hungary and throughout that area. It is a huge issue. And the Hungarian people, to be over there, Becky and I have been there a number of times, uh, it, beautiful country, spectacular food, gracious people, and uh, a place where Christianity once took root. There is still a Holy Spirit Square in downtown Budapest. There's still a Calvin Square, named after John Calvin, with a statue of John Calvin, still there in downtown Budapest. So re reminders that Christianity swept over this area at one point 500 years ago and has dissipated. And they have been so dominated over the sense, this is all off script so you can get, this is all free for you today. Um, but they're so dominated, they've been so dominated by the Mongols and the Tatars and then the, the, the Nazis and then the Russians and uh, they're, they're, a, they're a people that have been beat down. You can see it in their countenance. Uh, they've never won a war that they've been in. And as an American over there, you're walking around and we've never lost a war we've been in. So it's a very different countenance you can see uh, among them. But they are a desperate people that need the gospel. And so we're very glad we have the privilege to have a footprint over there and are involved in church planting. All right, enough history lesson on Hungary. Open your Bibles. We are in Ecclesiastes 10. We're in a series, Finding God's purpose or finding life's purpose. We've learned that what makes this book so unique, book of Ecclesiastes, is it's a diary. It's a, a, a journal of a disappointed, disillusioned, hedonist, a pleasure seeker. Now we all seek pleasure to some degree or another. John Piper argues there is such thing as a Christian hedonist, that the Christian hedonist is the one who understands pleasure is really in obeying God. That's the greatest pleasure. Hence, you can be a Christian hedonist, but usually hedonism is described as those who just are seeking worldly pleasures. The, the person who wrote Ecclesiastes is described as the preacher, most likely Solomon, someone who chased pleasures for years, binged on pleasures, but, and, and most of the pleasures he binged on were good ones. This is really not a trashing of pleasure. It's on the wrong focus in pleasure. And what the preacher finally realized was not only does pleasure-seeking not bring happiness, it actually gets in the way of happiness. You can have a point where you have too much stuff, too much money, too many distractions, and it not only is just, it doesn't bring satisfaction and pleasure, it actually starts working in the reverse and making you miserable. That's why so much of the time when Jesus spoke about wealth, he spoke about it as a curse, not a blessing, not a blessing. This brings us to chapter 10. Next week we will conclude... And we will see his great conclusion, which we have visited a couple times, that the only satisfaction in life comes from fearing and obeying God. Chapter 10, 
starting in chapter 7, he entered a kind of a new phase in the, in the book of talking about wisdom. And in chapter 10, he's going to continue that. He's been talking about the importance of making wise choices. But now in chapter 10, he's going to talk about wisdom, but he's going to come at it from the opposite way. And today he's going to talk about this question. Who is the fool? <laughs> Who is the fool? Fools are not always real easy to spot at first. They look like everybody else. They go to church. They are involved. They work where we work. They live in our neighborhoods. They don't look like the quintessential bad guy in a movie, you know, where they come dressed in dark colors and the, and the music changes. And you always tell who's like, oh, there's the bad guy or there's the fool. That's not always true in life. But that's today's question. Who is the fool? Wisdom literature in the Bible. By that I mean like Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. Those are, those are usually the three at a minimum that are called wisdom books. Wisdom literature has a very strong desire to identify godly decision-making versus foolish decision-making. And so wisdom literature has a great emphasis on the danger of being a fool. And the danger of making foolish decisions and what the consequences will be. So we're going to see two things in this chapter. The way of the fool, and then he's going to give us examples of the fool. So first of all, the way of the fool. Let me read the first three verses. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, the heart of the fool to the left. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense, and they show everyone how stupid they are. Now, we've learned from Ecclesiastes, again, this is wisdom literature. The focus of wisdom literature is this, the skill of living. There's a skill to it. Choosing wisely in life, and it's not easy. Wisdom literature wants to show us that our daily choices... Every decision leads to consequences, some of them to massive life-altering consequences. Not every decision you're going to make, even if it's bad, is going to alter life, but some do. Sometimes we make a decision that absolutely changes the course of our life. Wisdom literature wants to call that to our attention, that our, that our decisions have consequences for ourselves, our marriage, our family, our children, our neighborhood, our culture, and ultimately our eternity. According to wisdom literature in the Bible, there are three kinds of people on our planet. Ready? Here's the three groups of people on our planet according to the wisdom books. The wise, the naive, also called the gullible or the simple, kind of the same word there, or, and the fool. Those are the three classes of people on the planet. The wise, the naive or the simple, and the fool. I want you to turn with me just for a moment to the book of Proverbs. And I want to show you these three groups. Proverbs is like the quintessential wisdom book. And I want to show you these three groups of people mentioned. And then I want to make an interesting observation about the three groups. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Let me read it. And just before I read it, let me say this. You got the three categories of people in wisdom literature: the wise, the naive, and the fool. And, when, when, when it, and by the way, let me just clarify: when the Bible calls someone simple or naive, it's talking about the person who's gullible. Okay, they're 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 leaning towards being a fool, but they're not there. The fool already is hardened 
The fool is, is, has a hard heart. They hate accountability. They, they're, they're, they're in blame mode and all the rest. The gullible, the simple, or the naive, are leaning that direction, but there's still hope for them. They're not there yet, and there's hope that they may listen and come full circle. So that's, that's that category of person. What's interesting in wisdom literature, wisdom literature makes an appeal to the first two classes of people and not the third. Wisdom literature summons the wise, reaches out to the gullible, but wisdom literature only denounces the fool. It's interesting. Proverbs 1 to 5. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding the words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right, just, and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. So there's always more to learn, add to. And let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, sayings and riddles of the wise. Okay, so notice, first of all, the simpler mentioned, verse 4, for giving prudence to those who are simple. You could translate that naive or gullible. They're not wise. They're also not the hardened cynic fool who is chronically unteachable and disobedient. They're leaning that direction, but they're not there. There's still hope. And that's what the Hebrew word we translate simple means. It doesn't mean stupid. It means gullible, morally naive, lacks wisdom, but there's still hope. Verse 5 mentions the wise person who's open to advice, seeking godly counsel, ask others for help, and is open to what God says. What's so sobering, there is no appeal in wisdom literature to the fool. The fool is only denounced. Now, it raises the question, who's the fool? Because the fool is mentioned in verse 7. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, but fools. Fools. Right? Someone who's morally hardened, morally deficient, unteachable, hates accountability, rejects correction. They despise wisdom and instruction. Let me give you some other descriptions of the fool in Proverbs. You might just want to jot these down. Proverbs 1.22, the fool hates knowledge. Proverbs 10.23, the fool finds pleasure in evil conduct. Proverbs 14.16, the fool is hot-headed and reckless. Proverbs 17.21, to have a fool for a child brings grief. Proverbs 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his anger. That brings us back to Ecclesiastes 10. Solomon gives us an interesting description of the fool in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, verse 2. So when we're thinking, who is the fool? This is a person who rejects correction, hates accountability, blames and avoids responsibility, and is hardened. That's why wisdom literature makes no appeal to them, just denounces them. Verse 2 describes them, Ecclesiastes 10, the heart of the wise inclines to the right, heart of the fool to the left. You might say, well, why, what's that all about? Well, in the ancient world, the right hand was the place of honor. That's why Jesus is at the right hand of God. You see this in the Bible. This is not unusual. The left hand represented weakness and foolishness and rejection of God. So even in, for example, let me give you one example. Even in the final judgment, Jesus says he'll have all the <clears throat> people in front of him 
and he will separate sheep from goats. Remember that? And what side does he put what group on? Goats go on the left, sheep on the right. He says, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And he will say to those on the left, those are the unsaved, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So, again and again, when we come to wisdom literature in the Bible, it is reminding us, hear this, young people, this is aiming at you. If you remember, uh, Ecclesiastes is really gunning for younger, younger people. It's very clear in Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> Solomon, he has all ages in mind, <clears throat> but he is making a special appeal to those who are young. Why? Because they have a generally, you don't know this for sure, but generally you're going to have a longer lifespan and a greater trajectory. And if that trajectory gets off earlier in life, you're going to be further off the end of life. And so he is making an appeal to young people. Wisdom literature, here's what it's reminding us of, again and again and again, of the great danger of choosing foolishly. That's what wisdom literature wants to hold out in front of us all the time. And the urgency of choosing wisely. There is, a, there is an urgency in the language of wisdom literature. Don't choose foolish. Choose wise. Proverbs 1.20, wisdom calls aloud. This is not just somebody casually whispering in the alley, hey, choose wisely. Wisdom shouts out. She raises her voice in the public square. That's intensity. That's intensity. Proverbs 4, 5, and 6. Get wisdom, get understanding, do not forsake wisdom. Why? She will protect you. Young people, if you choose stupid, you will damage yourself and others around you. If you choose wise, you will protect yourself. Proverbs 8.1, does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? Why do you raise your voice? Why am I raising my voice? There's intensity. That's wisdom literature. And especially the young people, wisdom literature wants to say, pay attention. How you decide in life who you choose for a marriage partner, how you choose to spend your money, how you choose to behave sexually is going to have huge ramifications in your life. Choose wisely. Be careful. Wisdom literature summons us to remember that God's ways and His timing are always the best because He's loving and He's good. Even when life is hevel, word we've learned in Ecclesiastes, used 38 times in the book, translates uh, a mist or a vapor or, or brief, but also translates that life as a riddle and a paradox and gives you a headache a lot of the time because it's just frankly puzzling and bamboozles us. There's another Hebrew word, bamboozle. Even when all of that is, the wisdom literature is still saying, trust God in His timing and His ways are always best. Even when life is an enigma, even when it's a mystery, even when it's a paradox, even when, when it's a riddle, even when life doesn't make sense, even when it takes a completely different off-ramp than anything we ever expected, even when it turns out totally different than anything we'd hoped for. Let me just get pastoral a minute. Friends, beloved, Here's the bottom line. Disappointment and shattered expectations are a regular part of life. 
Wisdom literature acknowledges that. That's the whole point of it. Heartbreaking loss, betrayal, financial setbacks, mistreatment, foolish children, chronic pain, on and on and on the list could go. And unfortunately, just because someone goes to church or is religious doesn't guarantee that in the midst of all the heartbreaking loss and betrayal and financial setbacks and shattered expectations, just because someone's religious and goes to church doesn't mean that they will automatically fear God and choose wisely in the midst of life's setbacks and sufferings and shattered expectations. In fact, the Bible acknowledges many who claim Christ claim to know God, actually in the midst of suffering, trials, difficulties, start moving the other direction. Oh yeah, we start moving that way. We start moving towards blaming God, blaming the church, blaming the leaders, blaming this, blaming that, eventually walking away from church and get bitter. And this is the continental divide between the wise and the foolish. Understand that. The fool judges God in the midst of life's hurts, trials, and disappointments and puts God on trial and says his ways are deficient and he had no right to behave and do the things he's done in my life. Whereas the wise person, even though they don't understand it all, says God is good, God is loving, preaches the gospel to themselves and say, I'm going to submit and surrender to God's loving providence. You see, the wise person remembers the ancient saying of the ancient church, said it several weeks ago, Deus pro nobis, God for us. Who's us? His people, his elect. The wise remember God is for them. The wise person even comes to recognize God's loving hand as they look back over their life. They realize God's loving hand was there all along, even in their most painful circumstances. That's the wise person. Let me give you a classic example. One of my favorite dudes. I don't know if the right should call this guy a dude, but Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Okay? Some of you know the name. Some of you, few of you have read his stuff. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, as a young soldier in Russia, back in the day, was an atheist. He did not believe in God. True story. As a young soldier there, he was caught criticizing Stalin in a written communication. It wasn't a... I mean, you look at the criticism and it's not all that shocking. It's not even that pointed, but he was caught nonetheless. As a young soldier, he was an atheist. He was caught and he was sentenced to eight years in the prison, the gulag system. The gulag, there was a whole bunch of gulags, prisons, that formed a bit of an archipelago throughout central Russia and up into Siberia, hence the gulag archipelago, you know. And he was bounced around in, these, in this gulag system for eight years. It was brutal. I mean, his three volumes said on the gulag archipelago, uh, vital reading, not pleasant reading. But he describes this. Well, he moved through this system as an unbeliever, being treated horribly. Eventually, five years into his prison sentence, he was sent to another gulag in Kazakhstan, and there, recovering from surgery, he had a life-changing conversation with the camp physician. And shortly thereafter, Sol Sedichin committed his life to Jesus Christ as Savior. Years later, 
as he reflected on all this. By the way, he ended up in Vermont for a number of years, exiled from Russia, and then he ended up going back. He wanted to go back to his homeland when it reopened to him. But looking back on this time of brutality in his life, this is what he wrote. Some of you have heard these words. You couldn't hear these words enough. Because if you think you've had it rough, you should read the Gulag Archipelago. Here's someone who had a rough, with a capital R. But he looks back on that, and here's what he wrote later in life. This is, this is the wise person. Bless you, prison. Bless you for being in my life. For there lying on the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity, as we are made to believe, but the maturing of the human soul. And he is concerned he probably would not have learned that had he not been sent into the gulag system. That's the wise person. They don't hold God on trial. They don't shake their fist at heaven and say, how dare you put me in the gulag system. They understand that God is sovereign and loving in the life of his people. He is deus pro nobis. He is for his people. That's a great example of the wise person. Now that brings us to some examples of fools. In verses 4 to 20, Solomon just is going to give us some examples from his own cultural context of fools. So first, in verses 4 to 7, we see the foolish ruler. I mean, plug in the word king, president, prime minister, CEO, boss, you know, whoever, but this is the person in charge. If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions. We don't need too many amens, but... <laughs> Which the rich occupy the low ones. I, okay, so I've seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. Okay, there's one person who needs wisdom. It's the ruler of a nation. It's the ruler... It's the president's king, it's the prime minister, the person in charge. By the way, Solomon, interesting, talk about a guy who's vexed and conflicted and complex. When he became king in Jerusalem, according to 1 Kings 3, what's one of the very first things he did? He asked God for wisdom. And God said he gave it to him because he was so pleased with the request. He said, that's a really good request. I'm going I'm to grant it. So it's hard, it, it's hard to reconcile all that with Solomon making such a mess out of his life. But the picture in verse 4 and following is a foolish ruler who's taking out his anger on his subordinates around him. I love President Eisenhower, what he said. President Eisenhower said, you don't lead by hitting people over the head. Or really, you shouldn't lead by hitting people. He said, any fool can do that. That's called assault, not leadership. <laughs> so the wise ruler, it's been said, asks, what's best for my nation? The politician asks, what's best for my district? And the fool says, what's the safest and most predictable path and profitable for me? That's the difference. And so he's talking about the wise ruler. The second example he gives are wise, I mean, uh, foolish workers, verses 8 to 10. So first of all, you have foolish rulers, now foolish workers. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. He gives us several examples of foolish workers. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall or a hedge may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones 
could be injured. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. So he's describing different workers who suffered for being foolish. I mean, the one man dug a pit. He says he, he, you can easily fall in if you don't take precaution. Another man broke through a hedge or a wall or a fence, got bit by a snake. Verse 9 takes us to the quarries of the forest where a careless worker's Injured by cutting stones. Verse 10 is a foolish worker who tried to split wood with a dull axe. And so he's saying, you know, here are these examples of, of, of foolish workers. Verses 12 to 15, you have foolish talkers. Boy, wisdom literature puts a lot of emphasis on the use of our tongue and our mouth. So did Jesus. If the axe, I'm sorry, verse 12 to 13... Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious. Fools, interesting language, are consumed by their own lips. Consumed. At the beginning, their words are folly. At the end, they are wicked madness. And the fools and fools multiply words. So very interesting. Foolish talkers. According to Proverbs, two of the sure signs of a fool is how much they talk and the kinds of things that come out of their mouth. Same thing Jesus said. You know, Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 45 said, when you, when you speak, anybody here, me, you, all of us, when we speak, all we're doing is showing what's in our heart. Jesus was very clear. He said, what flows from the heart comes out the mouth, or out of the abundance of the heart speaks the mouth. That's, that's a very convicting, sobering truth. The uh, 19th century short story writer, Washington Irving, who gave us uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow and uh, Rip Van Winkle, he said, the tongue is the only instrument that grows sharper <laughs> with use. The tongue is the only instrument that gets sharper as you use it. And so Jesus and wisdom literature, very strong warnings about how we use our tongue. And that the kind of stuff that flows out of our mouth is... Not only words are powerful and lethal, powerful to build up, lethal to tear down, but more than that, they are revealing what's in our heart. And that's a pretty chilling thing to remind ourselves of, is me. Last example are foolish officers. He's already described foolish rulers. Now he's going to talk about the subordinates under the rulers. And he gives us three characteristics of foolish subordinates here. First, indulgence. Verses 16 and 17. Woe to the land whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth, whose princes eat at a proper time. They eat for strength and not for drunkenness and not for drunkenness. So indulgence is one of the first characteristics of a foolish officer. President Woodrow Wilson put it this way. He said, a friend of mine says that every man who takes office in Washington either grows or swells. <laughs> grows, meaning mature. Swell becomes proud and full of himself. When I give a man an office, I'm watching carefully to see whether he is swelling or growing. And one of the characteristics of foolish officers is his indulgence. Uh, second characteristic of foolish officers, incompetence. Verse 18. Through laziness, the rafters sag, and because of idle hands, the house leaks. 
And a third characteristic of a foolish officer is indiscretion with their mouth again. Again, huge emphasis on how we talk and the consequences. Do not revile the king even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom because a bird in the sky may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. Always be careful what you say. There's no guarantee it won't end up in the wrong ears. I want to do today's summons by asking you to turn with me to the New Testament to the book of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and I'm going to tell you why. We're starting a new series in a couple weeks called Following Jesus, and what we're going to do is go to the book of Matthew. Matthew is sometimes called the teaching gospel, and here's why it's called the teaching gospel. We have more of the teaching of Jesus in the book of Matthew than any other gospel. And because Matthew has a target audience of Jews in his day, many New Testament scholars see a pattern where he arranged his book around five of Jesus' sermons. I think that's a pretty clear pattern there. So we're going to look at the five sermons of Jesus in the book of Matthew, one each Sunday as we go along in this series following Jesus. His longest recorded sermon, Jesus' longest recorded sermon anywhere, is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the summons of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's lifted right out of wisdom literature. And so I want to turn to it this morning because he has a way of putting it in such pictorial, crisp language. These verses are the conclusion and the summons of Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount. And in these verses, he's telling a, a story, a parable, about the difference between the wise man and the foolish man. This is lifted. Remember, he is, Jesus is saturated in the Hebrew Bible, saturated in Hebrew categories. And it's no surprise that he's saturated in wisdom literature. And he's giving the conclusion to his longest sermon in this summons here about the difference between the wise and the foolish. It's a, it's a perfect summons for us today. So here's his story. Here's his story. Verses 24 to 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So there's your wise person. Rain came down, streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. And yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Rain came down, the streams rose, winds blew and beat against his house, and it fell with a great crash. Question. Always good to read a passage and ask a question. What is it here, as you look at that paragraph, that is separating the wise person from the foolish person? And the answer is this, what separates the wise from the fool, as you look at this, and by the wise, Jesus means the true follower of his, what separates the wise man, the true follower of Jesus, from the fool, is whether one does the words of Jesus. That's what he says. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words and does not put them into practice. So the wise person does the words of Jesus I say that because many people sit in a church for years and they claim to be saved and they claim to say they know Jesus, but they're not obeying Him. 
Every church has this group of people there. And so the question this morning that, that, that screams from this text is, do you know Christ? Are you certain you know Christ? You say, yeah, you end your sermons like that a lot. Well, I want to show you how Jesus ended this sermon. Go back one paragraph before this paragraph. We're still at his conclusion and his summons. And notice his passion on separating true from false believers and making sure you know him. Just back up to verses 21 to 23. And remember, this is not the middle of a sermon. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's driving his point home. He's at his conclusion. He's at his summons. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Notice the emphasis on doing versus saying. This does not mean you earn your salvation by good works. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying your salvation is verified by your good works. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day. He's gonna, there's a contrast here between saying and doing. We call it lip service. That's our modern phrase for it. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we, did we not preach in your name and drive out demons in your name and do miracles? That's a pretty impressive resume, ministry resume. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Why? Away from me, you evil doers. So the question this morning, same thing that James's wisdom literature in the New Testament, who's the real believer? It's the, it's the one who hears the Word of God and does the Word of God. The doing doesn't save us. The doing proves we're saved. That's the key. Salvation is not faith plus good works. Salvation is a faith that works. And here Jesus is simply reiterating that. So Jesus said the final proof and evidence that we know Christ is not just what we say. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, he said he was a Christian. He prayed a prayer. That's, that, Jesus is very clear. Lip service doesn't mean anything if it's not backed up by a life of obedience. And that's why he says not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven, only the one who does the will of my Father. Why? Because that is the final vindication, the final evidence, the final verification that we truly are one of His. That's wisdom literature.